Hi, I'm Chad Emerson, and this is the Downtown Explorer Podcast, the virtual third place where we gather for interesting conversations with downtown innovators and entrepreneurs. Hi, everyone. This is Chad Emerson, and we are back for another episode of the Downtown Huntsville Explorer. And we have one of my favorite planners in the world, Dennis Madsen with the city of Huntsville. Dennis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Okay, so your official title is... Uh, manager of urban and long-range planning a title so long they had to add an extra line onto the business card. I don't, they just, it was a kitchen sink of a title, but that's the official. But what do you really do? Like, I know you're the big picture guy, right. downtown master plan update guy. Give, give the audience who doesn't know you a glimpse of what you do. Sure. It's really about helping the city. And how do we get in front of it? You know, how do we make sure that we're solving problems before they become problems? And that is really what my department does. We look at, um, you know, where's the growth predicted to occur, not just where it's occurring, and how do we get in front of it in terms of infrastructure? Where are the gaps in amenities, and how do we go ahead and and add those? Um, How do we stay competitive economically um, when, you know, particularly even pre-COVID, there were real shifts in the way, you know, the national economy was working, and post-COVID, those things have only become exacerbated. How do we we continue to really sort of understand what, what the future is you know, where it's kind of headed and, and how we stay with it. And that's a great concept, the idea of trying to identify problems before they happen, yeah. that, that proactive approach. Um, and you probably have a really good experience of that because you lived in Atlanta right. before this. <laughs> right. Tell us about your experience in Atlanta because they had such great growth, but they didn't anticipate some problems yeah. beforehand. Yeah, there's sort of a case study in the horse getting out of the barn. And there were some fantastic projects there. Um, you know, my joke was always that when you're working in Atlanta, you could see some, you could learn from some fantastic projects and also see some incredibly tragic examples. Um, when it came from planning regionals, one of the, one of sort of the worst examples that they had was the, the inability or the, I guess, the unwillingness to kind of get in front of transit concerns concerns and transportation concerns, and that has really hamstrung their growth. Um, you know, if you ask anybody, you know, what the biggest headache of going to Atlanta is, it's getting around. Um, and it's it's really only gotten worse. We go back there a couple of times a year, and I've noticed, I didn't think it was possible, but it's, if anything, traffic's gotten worse there. And that, a lot of it has to do with, with poor coordination among the municipal organizations, but really it's just that that's lack of foresight and a lack of planning. Now, do you think Atlanta might get a bad rap in some sense? Because when people say it's hard to get around, a lot of times they're saying it's hard to get from one side to the other. But a lot of the inside the perimeter neighborhoods are very walkable and very connected through MARTA or the streetcar or the Beltline or the, the, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's the meme that uh, Atlanta is an hour from Atlanta. Um, but that was what always made it livable when we were there were the little neighborhood nodes that, that you could kind of uh, kind of find a home in. We lived in East Atlanta Village and we loved it. We could, we could stay there the entire weekend and have pretty much everything we needed within a five-minute drive. But um, when it came to the kind of connective tissue among a lot of those nodes and really in the greater Atlanta area, that was the part that really started to struggle, uh, particularly around transit. But to your point, you're absolutely right that they're working on solving a lot of those issues. It just becomes a little more difficult when you're trying to do it after a lot of these decisions have been made. I think the Beltline is a great example of creating this fantastic amenity that links all these neighborhoods in, in t- um, with a multi-use path. And, and if they if they really commit to it, it could include transit. Um, but that's something that um, if you had done it 
you know, 10 or 20 or 30 years ago, it would have been a lot easier to do and it would have been a lot less expensive to do and probably a lot more effective. Now, I think Atlanta also provides an example, and we talk about the Beltline, um, probably one of the iconic projects that came out of, what, a master's thesis or something like mm-hmm. that with Ryan. Yeah. Um, its cost was exponentially less than the streetcar in Atlanta, right. and it <laughs> seems to be exponentially used more. Yes. So explain more in a planning world how you can build something significantly cheaper and it be right. significantly more used. Yeah, I think it was really making a commitment to the vision for the Beltline. It was saying, you know, we're not going to cut corners on this. We're going to make an, uh, you know, we're going to make a nice environment. We're going to make commitments to link certain things. Um, it, when you go on the Beltline now, the fact that you can get all the way from Piedmont Park down to Krog, um, which is a, you know, another kind of. Um, near Halsey Yards and sort of the east side of Atlanta. That's incredibly important, just having those connections. Then the the private sector kind of comes in and fills experiences along there, and you see development happening along there. And it's really this incredible public-private partnership that, you know, the real yield is is that return, that it doesn't take a whole lot to put the path down, and then you see a whole lot of return on private investment. Whereas the the, um, the streetcar really was going to be incredibly expensive just to, to, to try and acquire and work with an existing right-of-way, and you didn't see a whole lot of new development associated with it. So there wasn't nearly as much of a payoff with the streetcar as what there was the Beltline. And the, and the Beltline continues to grow and continues to pay off. So let's look at Huntsville now, um, trying to look around the corner, as you say. Connectivity. Mm-hmm. Especially with if you look at you know downtown as as a hub, you go north and you have you know North Huntsville, Alabama A and M. You go Research Park. What is your vision for what we might not need now in terms of connectivity? But if we keep growing, we probably will need later. Right now, that's a really good question. I think for us, it is creating more variety and more choice in transportation. Um, you know, we're it's very easy to. Huntsville in a car. Um, I like that. I mean, having been in Atlanta for decades, um, you know, that was a city that I always say seemed designed to make the driver angry. Um, and here it's fantastic. I mean, you can, you know, unless you're at gate nine at 745 in the morning, um, generally you can get around Huntsville pretty well by car. But to really be able to sustain our growth, we have to provide more options. And that goes from the the bike and pedestrian infrastructure on one end to the transit on the other. And I think there's a lot of folks out there who think, you know, I'm, I don't ever ride the shuttle anywhere. I don't ever ride transit anywhere. Um, that demand we know already exists and is really only going to grow and being able to provide another option um, for high functioning transit is going to be really important to make sure that that we can sustain all the numbers that we see coming to Huntsville. I think one of the um, really unrealized gems we have in terms of connectivity in Huntsville is the the locally owned and operated rail line, Mm. which basically goes from the core of downtown all the way down to the river almost, Right. right? Right. Uh, it's 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 in store rail cars, but what could a line like that be if you start thinking of moving people along this memorial corridor, which is increasingly packed? Right. Yeah, that's a there's a great vision there that potentially that can be its own multimodal corridor um, in the near term without a whole lot of difficulty because there is a fair amount of right of way there. You could create a multi use path um, or even really a service path that you could use that the, the railroad authority could use to maintain its tracks. And when they're not using it to maintain its tracks, 
that could be used for bikes and, and pedestrians to so really move all the way from you know ditto to downtown. Um, and then long term, as we do continue to grow out and as we can continue to kind of add density in certain areas, um, South Huntsville in particular being a very, very popular part of the city in terms of development, um, that that could in the future become a transit corridor, that you could have a streetcar or a trolley or light rail that would take you from downtown to various points um, all the way down to the river. I think there's a fantastic opportunity there. Um, it's really kind of unique um, in the region in terms of what it could offer uh, as far as both an amenity and uh, a transit opportunity. So downtown, um, you got here, what, 12, 2012? 2013. Okay, so... About eight months before you did. Yeah, I was going to say, I got here in, in uh, August mm-hmm. of 2013, so you were just um, getting here. What has been some of the things that have surprised you in these last eight years? You're like, well, that seemed like that happened quicker or slower <laughs> than it should have happened. It's almost it's almost always... Um, the the former everything seems to have happened much faster than we'd anticipated i think the greenway growth has happened much faster than anticipated a lot of the reinvestment in town um has happened much more quickly i think low mill is a great example but even the redevelopment of the parkway both north and south has happened much more rapidly than we had um than we had really thought it would we were kind of starting to put the pieces in place and saying, all right, in the next 5, 10, 15 years, this will really play out. But I think for folks who are are Huntsville natives, if you think of the way the parkway looked, say, from downtown to Airport Road, think about it five years ago and what it looks like today. It is an incredible change in a very short time. And then also, you know, even if this weren't a downtown podcast, I'd also have to tip my cap to to DHI and you. Um, the, The amount of change in the amount of growth and the amount of really positive and constructive and sustainable development that's happened downtown this this should have in many other cases probably taken a lot longer you guys really hit the ground running um and i think the amount of new businesses and the amount of growth and the amount of development downtown is um it's been very much accelerated beyond what you would consider a, a a typical timeline well, thanks for the kind words. Sure. <laughs> so um, let's talk about the areas. A lot of times you see this when a downtown begins to take off, the immediately adjacent areas. Yep. Atlanta is a great example. The neighborhood you lived in, adjacent to Midtown, right? Um, Nashville with the Gulch, mm-hmm. Germantown. Tell us, or t- tell us what you think about, because some people are surprised when you say, oh, Low Mill, Lincoln Mill, West Huntsville, and Merrimack, they're all going to be hot here right. really soon. And they're like, why would they people move there? Right. Tell us why, when you look from a professional perspective, yeah. those areas make sense. Yeah. it's. I think proximity will out. Um, if you look at uh, another great peer city like Chattanooga, um, where they made a lot of their focus on that downtown kind of tourist center, um, but what happened very, very quickly was that North Shore took off really just because of a, a bridge improvement. They had created this great pedestrian bridge that linked their tourism center to a, to the North Shore. That really took off. Then you start moving south, and that really blew up. Um, it kind of created its own culture that was very complementary to downtown. And I think that sort of thing is inevitable, and it's really because you start to – you want to be where the action is and um, – 
kind of complementary neighborhoods start to take on um, a little bit of a relationship with the downtown. So you've got, say, the the Campus 805 and the Stovehouse District and and, uh, Low Mill all have this kind of uh, almost sort of a sibling relationship with downtown and this sense of connection. And I really see, um, you know, the Oak Park and the Meridian and Oakwood corridors developing that way as well. Um, I think a lot of folks some of them may remember that that area was actually part of the previous downtown master Mm -hmm. plan. And we kind of excised it because in the last downtown master plan update, because it was so different, it had its own kind of character and it had its own set of challenges. We didn't want it to get kind of lost in the discussion. So we said, all right, we're going to focus this master plan update on the downtown, on the downtown core, that kind of traditional South of 565. Um, but we're going to come back and we're going to take a new look at the Meridian and Oakwood corridors and, and figure out what they want to be. And I think you're already seeing the growth pressure moving north. Um, and we've already started looking at, all right, what is, what's the next iteration of that? And what is its relationship with downtown? How do those two, uh, how do those two neighborhoods kind of work together? So we talked about um, potential south connections, the rail corridor, mm-hmm. multimodal. Um, east, we're a little bit blocked by Montesano. But north and west, um, give us some thoughts from a planning perspective of what could be the corridors that are really important in the future as we're trying to look around the corner to connect with the northern assets and the western assets. Well, I will say even before I go north and west that east, there are some connectivity opportunities. You've got the Blossomwood neighborhood um, and the areas on the other side of California that because of the nature of California, they feel a little bit disconnected. And I think there's some opportunities for us to improve connections for for bikes and pedestrians to the east as well. Um, But I think long term, you're right, the northern growth quarters, particularly along um, say uh, Washington and Meridian, um, where you can really uh, connect to um, kind of growing neighborhoods in that direction. I think the Meridian corridor is a fantastic opportunity because um, you can link all the way to Drake and A and um, I think you were one of the first folks who talked about this as an education corridor. The fact that I think you can go to just about everything but middle school on that corridor. You can go from daycare all the way through college um, on that corridor. Oh, you mean with MLK Elementary, mm-hmm. Lehigh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and M and Drake. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you've yeah. got you've basically got almost every grade you could go to on the Meridian Quarter, and I think that's a great opportunity because that becomes part of a brand, and you can you can almost develop sort of an education district along there, and I think that will really start to to foment growth to the north. Um, to the west, I think you've got a couple of different quarters. One is the Clinton Avenue quarter, which we've already really kind of started working on. We've you know restriped that for bike lanes, and you're even starting to see businesses kind of turn over and fill in along there with the Housing Authority's Choice Neighborhoods Initiative and the way that could impact redevelopment along that quarter. That growth is really kind of already <laughs> happening, but I think one of the most compelling opportunities is the Holmes Avenue yeah. quarter. Um, that one where you can link from downtown H and CRP. And I really like that they almost form this kind of this right angle where you've got Meridian coming in from the north and you've got um, homes coming in from the west, both of which are anchored with with employment centers and and um, colleges or yep. universities, and they both meet in downtown. And you have this great kind of epicenter uh, for these two very busy development corridors. And I think both of those will be um, will be centers for growth for, for the foreseeable future. A lot of people want to talk about high-profile light rail and streetcars, and, and those can work. Um, but there's also a concept called bus rapid transit, which I think the word bus kind of 
turns off people from the very beginning, oh, it's a bus, and for whatever reason doesn't seem as exciting as a trolley, right? right? But bus rapid transit, um, what is it and what makes it effective? Because we're seeing in Birmingham, they're dealing with some challenges. They've tried to maybe, you know, take out a few things that make it work, like dedicated signals and things like that. Mm -hmm. So tell us about bus Rapid transit. Yeah, it's something that you think is the more you kind of discuss it, the more it would be attractive to a city filled with engineers because it's very effective um, in terms of its carrying capacity and it's very cost effective relative to things like light rail. Um, but it it is generally rubber tire units, buses that operate more like trolleys or light rail trains. Instead of stopping at a small stop and folks having to climb up the steps and drop in their fare, it really will roll up to a station area and it'll be at the same level of the station area. Doors will open like they would on the train. Folks will get off, folks will get on. You know, you all have already paid your fare. Um, So it operates much more quickly, but you don't have to put down the rails and you don't have to put down all that infrastructure that makes that kind of, of transit uh, really, really expensive. So BRT, you get almost the carrying capacity of light rail with a whole lot less cost. And there are a lot of cities out there, Jacksonville, Florida is a great one, that has incrementally built out a regional transit system, just one BRT line at a time. And I, I think the key is, you know, as long as they're clean, as long as they run quickly, as long as they run frequently, as long as they're easy to access, and as long as they go where people want to go, um, it can be a very, very effective option for us. So how does it work, though? Uh, so one of the things is you're going down homes and you hopped on bus mm-hmm. rapid transit in downtown and you want to go out to UAH for a mm-hmm. Or whatever you want to go out to Adtran or to the new cyber campus, and you get to Jordan Lane, and everyone stops. Like, how? Oh, what sure. are, what's yeah. the technology that makes yeah. those bus rapid transit different than a regular bus on a regular lane? Right. Yeah, there are a lot of ways you can do it, um, and the the feds, the the federal government, who you know generally helps fund operations like this, will allow you to do things that that you can have them in traffic, or you can have dedicated right of way where you set aside a lane. Um, for the BRT so it can move back and forth unimpeded. But there are a lot of kind of mid-range opportunities where instead of having to do this whole chunk of right-of-way for the entire length of homes, you could go to the intersections and just add a lane at the intersection. And the BRT only can use that, and its green light turns green first, so it can jump ahead of the queue and move a little bit more quickly. And then there's a lot of technology out there, too, that allows for kind of prioritized signal timing, where as a unit approaches, you can you can start to reset or the signal can anticipate that a BRT unit is coming and give you a green a little bit more quickly. Um, so I think the, the technology aspect of it allows it to operate much more efficiently um, because you're right, at the end of the day, folks want it to be convenient and quick. They don't want to be, you know, the reason they're not sitting in a car is because they don't want to sit in that same traffic. They want to feel like they can they can get somewhere a little bit more quickly or at least, you know, be able to mess with their phones without sitting in traffic. That's right. Um, so that's a, um, that I think is one of the big attractors for it is that um, you, know, you can make it work very efficiently. You can make it work very quickly. It can take people where they want to go um, at much less uh, cost of investment. Choice Neighborhood Initiative, Mm -hmm. CNI. Um, Boy, there's, it's one of those things that it's hard to explain when you start talking about mixed income and you start talking about complementary uses, but it's a big deal to get identified as, or get selected by HUD. So Give some context to what CNI means 
for immediately adjacent to downtown. Right. Well, we talk a lot of times about government organizations and how they should act more like businesses, right? Well, this is housing authorities looking at what they have that's of value and figuring out how to deliver a better product basically by leveraging what they have of value. And um, cities around the country and their housing authorities are, are in this weird kind of paradox where they're sitting on housing stock, the housing itself that is really, really old and, and kind of out of date and in many cases very difficult to maintain. So that's kind of a burden. But then at the same time, they're sitting on land that is becoming increasingly valuable because you're seeing these, this trend all around the United States where people are really sort of reinvesting in the urban core. So land that didn't have as much value in the 60s and 70s is suddenly worth a whole lot more. So the housing authorities have this opportunity to leverage their land value into new housing for their residents. And because so often these things were built at a fairly low density relative to a downtown, you can add market rate housing as well. So you end up creating something that feels a little bit more like an urban community. Um, it gets the housing authority new housing. Um, it gets more housing downtown because there's folks, you know, even folks who don't necessarily need subsidized housing who want to live downtown and maybe can't afford some of the high-end multifamily that's downtown, but they really want to be close to downtown. They want to be where the action is. This is an opportunity to really provide a much broader range of housing. And also, this is this is a point that you and I have talked a lot about that it's not just about the housing anymore for HUD. While they're called housing and urban development, they also want to think about the neighborhood and the people, and they want to focus on design. And it's not just about putting buildings on the ground. It's about creating a really good neighborhood where folks want to live that's walkable, that ha- that's accessible to employment, that has all the amenities and the green space and the shopping and the entertainment that folks would want as part of, a, as part of an in-town neighborhood. I personally think that autonomous vehicles are going to upend just about everything we're thinking about right now. And so are you thinking about how AVs work, where they take people, how they take people, where they drop them off, where they wait for them? It seems like a whole altered infrastructure for AVs. Oh, you could have a whole podcast just talking AV. Um, There are a lot of challenges, and it depends on who you talk to with regard to how they might be implemented and how quickly they might be implemented. I think there are a lot of folks who are a little skeptical about kind of single-occupant vehicles and how long that'll take to, to get going. But I think in terms of, say, freight carriage, and transit. You know, those are uh, large vehicles that you generally know where they're starting from and where they're going, and there's not a whole lot of deviation. Um, and those could be things that within the next decade you could see um, you could see them show up. Now, the question then is, what sort of infrastructure do they need? Um, it's not just the pavement. It's also data infrastructure. You know, those vehicles need to be able to know exactly where they are. They need, you can't drop a signal when, you're, when you've got a, you know, an AV bus or an AV truck. You want it to always be connected and always know exactly where it is. Um, so that's a big part of what we're looking at is what is the, what is the, the data infrastructure? What is, you know, how does 5G impact our ability to accommodate um, autonomous vehicle infrastructure? That's that's one of the big things is thinking about 21st century infrastructure is no longer just about pavement stuff that's burning around in the wires and the nodes that informs what's happening on the pavement. Well, what a great conversation. Like I said, we could, we could have multiple podcasts with you. Um, there's so many topics to talk about. But as we wrap things up, as you're looking around the corner, what are some examples of downtowns at um, – we don't learn from their problems, but from their successes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm, I always have been a fan of Chattanooga. 
you know, they have some very real geographic challenges. I mean, the the fact that they're tucked into that river valley and there's only really so many ways you can get roads in and out. But the way they focused on their downtown and then leveraged that into improvements in communities around the downtown core, I think, has been fantastic. Um, I think Charleston is another one of my favorite yeah, cities. Um, you know, that's one that, you know, you walk around the historic district and you, you start looking and you think, you know, I've never wanted to be super rich. But when you look at some of those houses south of Broad, you think, I would like to be super rich. So I could afford one of those houses. Um, but but that's one that I think they've done a nice job maintaining the character um, and, and maintaining a, um, a real sense of place in Charleston. They knew what they were, and they said, we're going to stay true to ourselves, and we're going to stay Charleston. I think they've done a great job. And, and I think there is a lot of stuff that is inherently Huntsville that we just have to make sure that we kind of tease out and maintain so that we're all, we always have that, that recognizable character. Yeah, it's interesting you said Charleston because Charleston and Savannah are two that Mm -hmm. we benchmark against in the sense that you have a uniquely large single-family historic district in your downtown. And not not just lofts, not just condos, but these actually beautiful large homes. And in both of those cases, you don't go there for an aquarium. There's an aquarium in downtown Charleston, but you go there for that walkable oh, experience yeah. right yeah oh uh, we um, when we lived in atlanta charleston was one of our favorite getaways and you know i can count on one hand the number of times we actually went to the aquarium but we would spend the bulk of our time walking around the shopping district and then and then walking down to the battery and checking out the old homes there i mean it's just uh, they did a very nice job with the preservation there and i think you're right it's it's very much applicable to what we're doing because if you've grown up in Huntsville and you've lived here for a long time, you kind of forget how unique and fantastic it is that we have really these three historic housing districts right smack next to downtown. I mean, that's fantastic. It's an incredible amenity. You see the folks who are leading tours of the of the um, in-town and historic housing um, do very, very well because people come and they, they love to look at these things and they love to see the beautiful architecture. They love to hear the stories behind it. I, I think that's something that if we can take care of it and manage it, it can be a huge part of our, our success in the future. All right. There is the gospel, according to Dennis Madsen, on, on all things planning, and I'm um, nodding this entire conversation because obviously we agree on a lot of things. I think there's a lot of collaboration going on these days. Uh, if they want to learn more about the downtown master plan, the big picture, all that, where where's the best place to find that? Bigpicturehuntsville.com. Um, it is on the city's page, but it also is kind of its own site. That's where the comp plan lives. You don't have to worry about going to find some big three-ring binder. It's bigpicturehuntsville.com. We actually keep it updated as well. Okay. So we're going to hop into here uh, the final segment we like to call our favorite five. <laughs> uh, we have these great conversations, but we want people to get to know uh, the people behind the conversation. So, Dennis, uh, these are designed to be one-word answers. You can explain if you want to, but they're also designed uh, just to be one word. So let's get started. Number one, uh, Atlanta United or Atlanta Braves? United. Easy. Okay. Number two, Grant Park or Inman Park? Wow. Not as easy, eh? No, that's <laughs> a tough one. Um, I have, because I was East Atlanta, I have to say Grant Park. All right. Grant Those Park. are my neighbors. Yeah, that's right. Deep dish or thin crust? Oh, thin crust all day. A spring hike or a fall hike on Montesano? You can't go wrong with either, but because I am Mr. Autumn Man, um, I would have to say fall hike. Fall hike. And last but not least, uh, number five, and your favorite five, craft coffee or craft beer? Both. That's a one-word answer. That is a one-word answer. (laughs) He just broke the system, Tim. He gave a one-word answer. 
First one to do that. All right, well, there's Dennis's favorite six on this episode of the Downtown Explorer podcast. Dennis, thanks for all the great work you and your team are doing. Uh, it's invaluable. Go to thebigpicturehuntsville.com and learn more. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me.